Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. On the show today, it's the final race preview show of the year, and it's a title showdown in Valencia. Will Francesco Bagnaia take his maiden MotoGP title, or will reigning champ Fabio Quattararo find a way to snatch it once again? We're also taking a look at some of the riders who'll be enjoying their last rides with their respective teams this weekend. Your questions answered, predictions, and could there be a new MotoGP? team on the horizon the recording date is wednesday the 2nd of november my name is harry benjamin joining me as ever is crash's motor gp editor pete mclaren and former grand prix rider and british champion keith hewin and well this is it keith we didn't think i don't know a few months ago we'd get a a title showdown at the very last race but here we are 23 points in the favor of peko banyaya it's in the bag for him is it yeah, I think it is. I think that, that I, I wouldn't say anything other than that. I mean, even even if he doesn't do the business this weekend, Quattararo still got to do the business to, to to get enough points to actually snatch it from him at the last round. We've seen these last round encounters before, where it's all gone particularly wrong for somebody. The most famous one, obviously, is, is if you go back to what was it, two thousand and six with Valentino Rossi, something like that. I seem to remember where he lost it in the final round. So it does happen, but I can't really see it happening. This for me, the the, the the big deal is we've got eight Ducatis on the rank. There's surely got to be some kind of team orders. Surely there has got to have been some kind of conversation gone around all of the teams that are contracted to Ducati to try and make sure this is going to work out okay and they're not going to impede Bainaya in any way, shape or form. From a rider perspective, the biggest problem you've got going into a final round with this kind of fight on, it's easier for Quattararo. He's lost the championship unless he comes up with something brilliant for himself and something unlucky for Magnaia. So really, Quattararo should have no pressure this weekend. He's just going to be flying around there, doing his very, very best right the way through free practice, qualifying, and then the race. But for Magnaia, he's got to make that work. Now, as soon as you go into, I just need these few points mode, that's when you start making mistakes. And Valencia is one of those tracks where you can find yourself on the floor for virtually no reason. Now, I've looked at the weather forecast. It's not looking bad which is a good thing for Bagnaia because at the end of the day, where you have the biggest problems at, at, uh, at Valencia is suddenly when you turn left after you've been doing a load of right-handers for, for the last I don't know how long and so on. It's a track that suddenly you need the other side of the tyre. And if the tyre's cooled a little bit because it's freezing cold, because it's damp or whatever it might be, you can make a mistake. It's going to take a mistake from Bagnaia to give Quattararo even a slight crack in the, in the door to... to easy foot through. I can't see it myself. I think Magnaia's got the job done. 
Going into Valencia, he has all the advantage um, with eight Ducatis, including his own, on the grid. You surely must have some kind of orders there to not impede in any way. I mean, Bastianini is the man that's in my mind mostly, um, just purely and simply because next year they're going to be teammates. Can you imagine starting that off next year if um, if, if Bagnaia's championship is costed by by his teammate Bastianini uh, at the final round of this year? Um, can't see it happening myself. I think we saw Bastianini defer to Bagnaia last time out. I think he'll do it again if he has to this time out. Um, it's just a question of Ducati getting all their management ducks in a row, having words with all of their satellite teams and independent teams and everybody that's involved with Ducati to make sure that Bagnaia is protected at this round. Is that a good thing? Huh. If they didn't, I would call Ducati's professionalism very poor. This is a situation, this is a big deal for Ducati. They've not won a championship in so, so long. You know, to not get some kind of orders out there as a corporation would, in my view, be unprofessional. You know, it's unpalatable to us fans watching from the sidelines because you want to see a flat-out race between everybody on the track, but it's unprofessional from a manufacturing point of view if you don't do everything in your power to make sure that championship is in the bag. And I think it might actually produce, let's say, a decent race because if another Ducati rider can blast away uh, into the distance and take that win that Quattraro, as Keith just said, has to have, even to have a chance. If another Ducati rider can take that off the table, great. So I think that there's actually, a, you know, from Ducati's side, the team orders are a bit more simple this time than they were for the previous races because they can say to the guys, let's say after qualifying, if they've got a couple of Ducatis on the front row, which wouldn't be a shock, look, guys, disappear into the distance, win the race, ride for yourself. No problem there for us because if you do that, you're, you're by definition giving Pekka the championship. So I think it could still be, it's a very complicated situation, as Keith explained, but I think we could still see a good race at the front. Also, because you've got guys mixed in there who really don't care about the outcome of the championship. The likes of Marquez, the Suzuki guys that are leaving, maybe uh, the Aprilias as well, Vinales. Uh, Aleish obviously got to be a little bit careful because he's got a, a title fight with Bastianini for third. That's only, I think, one point in it, isn't it? So those guys have got to be a, a little bit more careful, but their teammates don't. Um, so... You know, there's a lot There's a lot in the mix there. But I think from Ducati's point of view, they'll actually breathe a sigh of relief if they see some other Ducatis on that front row, Jorge Martin, someone like him on pole, Jack Miller maybe wanting to go out with a big bang and just say to them, look, guys, you go ahead. You just blast into the distance and uh, let's just take all the stress out of, the, out of uh, what could happen if Quattararo wins this race. Because as Keith said, that's got to happen first. Quattro's got to win this race, which is a massive task. I mean, where was he last year? I think he was uh, fifth place. You know, it's it's not an easy one for him to win around here. And he's got to do that. So he's got to ride the race of his life. I mean, to, to be on the podium would be a fantastic result for Quattro this weekend. But who knows? Will he pull out the magic? I mean, Keith mentioned 2006. That's the one we keep hearing the big upset, wasn't it? But I think it was only eight points between Rossi and, and Hayden, wasn't it? This is 23. It's a, it's on another scale, really, and it's a, it's a massive task. Banyaya, he's got to keep it on two wheels, basically. And if he does that, and he's top 14, even if uh, Quattro wins, he's champion. And as he said, they've been close, but they've never had this championship since Stoner. You know, Stoner was run-up again in 08. They had a couple of times with, with Dovi finishing runner-up. Banyaya was runner-up last year. Looks like Gigi's finally going to tick that box of a, of a premier-class championship. At Ducati. He's won championships with Aprilia, Superbike, other Grand Prix classes, but this is the one he's wanted for all these years. So 
it's all it's all looking heading in Banyai's direction. Even the weather, as Keith says, you know, if it was going to pour down on Sunday, that would add a bit more drama, wouldn't it? But it does look like it'll be stable weather, although a bit chilly, as Keith also mentioned. So yeah, watch out on the uh, is it the right side of the tire? I think round there, isn't it? Uh, yeah, easy to be caught out. Lot to look forward to this weekend as well, isn't there? Because I think there's, you know, as well as the action out on track, there's all the uh, finalising action back in pit lane as well with personnel swapping places or committing themselves to other manufacturers. You've got the test coming up the week after as well, which is critical for so many people. I mean, Valencia is going to be alive this next week. You're going to be scribbling, Pete, for crash. <laughs> <laughs> and only a one-day test, of course, usually in the past, isn't it? We've, we've had the two days at Valencia. You get the Monday off for everyone to sort of get over their hangovers from the, the end-of-season parties that the riders might have had, and then they're back on the track Tuesday and Wednesday. But uh, this year, it's only Tuesday. So that's going to be a packed test, as you can say, Keith. I mean, as soon as the lights go on, they'll be sending people out of pit lane on, on current bikes, on new bikes. You've got guys changing teams. So, yeah, it's going to be non-stop. It's a busy week, busy week. There's all that crossover that always amuses me at this time of the year as well because there will be people that are going to be going to new teams and new situations in 2023 that are still contracted to the end of 2022 with the teams they're with. So it's kind of like it's kind of a situation where for, for each and every team, they've almost got to manage the new stuff that they're going to be playing with on Tuesday without letting the people that are going to be moving know too much about what's going on or what their plan is for 2023. Really difficult to manage. And I think Gigi's in that slightly difficult position, isn't he? From from a, bearing in mind that there's more Ducati personnel than there are anybody else nowadays. It's certainly going to be a fascinating one to watch both on track and, as you say, in the pit lane and behind uh, the team garages. Uh, to, to reaffirm, Fabio to win or to stand a chance of taking the title must win the race. Peko has to be 15th or lower. And just saying that is a, is a pretty massive task. The, a nightmare scenario, I imagine, is if we get a Phillip Island and suddenly you've got the Suzuki's and Mark Marquez going for, for the win and the podium. And then that's going to all of a sudden put Peko Bagnai under a little bit more pressure. Fabio might be able to squirt his way through as well. Mental pressure, surely, for both of them is going to be a, a, a fair challenge this weekend. No, I think that, that, that Quattararo's got a plain and simple job, you know, and we're going to see how what he's prepared to do because he's going to have to stick it on the line through free practice and through qualifying. He's got to qualify on the front row of the grid to start with. Valencia's a nightmare place to pass. Bangaya, to be honest with you, even if he didn't turn up this weekend, I think he's still going to win it because I just think that Quattararo's got too much of an uphill, uphill job. Um, but if Quattararo does put it on the line, I mean... I, I've said this before on this podcast. As a rider, you can turn up and say, I've got no pressure this weekend. I'm gonna, I'm just going to give it 100%. He's already given it 100%. Every time he turns up, every time he cups his leg over that bike, whatever, wherever he ends up, he's already given it mentally and physically everything he can, even if he finishes fourth, fifth, off the podium, whatever it might be. So to say that, well, it must be easy for him now because he's got no pressure. He can just go and do whatever he wants to do. He's just got to win the race. It's doesn't count because he's trying to do that every weekend anyway so we get here at Valencia it's going to be about how that Yamaha feels for him this weekend he's got to put it on the front row it's I don't think even the second row will be any good either once 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 you're away at the front once you're in line your wheels are in line around Valencia it's very difficult to make a pass you're coming on to the to the front straight which is a long fast straight as it turns out but you've got sort of bottom gear selected onto the straight the Ducatis launch from from nowhere as well you know, the, the ride height adjustment they've got, they'll blast down that straight. So Yamaha's got virtually no uh, chance of making any passes into turn one. And you're done, really. So Quattararo's got 
an impossible task is my view. And even if Quattararo was to dump it, I know that that's not the way he wants to go out. The fact of the matter is, is that Quattararo has got to win. Pete's covered it absolutely perfectly. You know, Ducati, will they just release them all? Will they say, okay, well, if you're in, you know, front positions, go for it. As Pete's already said, that's, that makes sense. But I think where it gets more complicated is if Bagnaia's up there with them and they're all messing around with each other mm. and Quattararo's disappearing in the, in the distance, which is a scenario I don't think even Quattararo expects. Well, never say never uh, in uh, MotoGP. Uh, stick around for the weekend. It's going to be very, very exciting indeed. Uh, you mentioned, though, earlier, Keith, it's going to be uh, a last uh, dance, really, for a lot of uh, not just uh, personnel, but also uh, a lot of our MotoGP riders. In fact, uh, 10 riders will either be racing their last race in MotoGP or moving on to another team. Miller off to KTM, Bassanini, we know he's going to Ducati, Miguel Oliveira off to RNF Aprilia, Alex Rins, both Suzuki's moving to Honda territory. Um, and we've spoken a lot about them throughout the year, but uh, some of the riders we maybe haven't spoken too much about. I thought it'd be nice to chat about them before their last uh, space, uh, their last rides with their respective teams. And uh, one, well, whose brother has been doing very well this year, uh, but Paul Espargro, uh, not the best of years for him, bit of an emotional final race he's expecting. How are you looking at Paul Aspargro's time at, at Repsol Honda? He moves to gas, uh, the KTM Gas Gas team uh, for 2023. The, the real highlights, well, there haven't really been that many. Do you know what? I really expected Paul Aspargro, with the kind of style he's got, and the, the, the way that he, he he's quite aggressive on a motorbike, pre-Honda, I thought he'd get on all right with it. And he really hasn't. And it seems to have petered out as the, as the year's gone on. You know, his biggest chances came early on in the season and, and they've slowly gone away from him. And it just doesn't seem to have been able to find his mark at all with it as the season's developed. I mean, the thing is, when you get on a new motorbike, you know, normally that's the kind of, you know, default is getting up on the thing as it arrives out of the crate for the first race meeting or first test. And then you develop that, you know, through the year. But he really has not been able to do that at all. Um I think the Aprilia thing, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Aprilia for 2023. I'm, I'm really, really keen to see how that, that develops for me. Um, that's probably, for me, the most exciting team for next year, the fact that we've got more Aprilias on the grid and, and the way that that will develop. Um, it's testing time. I still I struggle with this. I really do one-day test, you know, and then we go, go to Sepang where... You know, it could be monsoon still. You could have a track that's been, had car testing on it the week before and it takes, you know, the first shakedown day to clear a bit of room, a groove in the track. And then the first time the factory boys get on the bikes, the groove's still not there yet and they crash their brains out on the on the opening day. You know, this testing thing just, just I, I do not understand it. I can't fathom why we are in the position we are with so little testing. You know, funding is a big thing, um, you know, we don't need a funding cap in MotoGP. They just don't have that amount of money. So um, it's not like they've got an excess of cash to, to overspend like you, you have in Formula One. That seems to be a popular thing in Formula One at the minute. Naughty boy, Christian Horner. And um, it's kind of one of them things where there's just not the money for the testing. And then we roll on into to the, the, the longer season if we get all of the rounds that they're planning as well. The cost involved in that, the fact that you know, in some circumstances, mechanics aren't getting paid any extra. Riders aren't getting paid any extra for the extra rounds that they're going to be doing during next year. I hear everybody going, well, poor them. Um, but it is a very, very long season coming up. We've even had, 
with the exception of good old Pete, who's a proper workhorse in uh, behind the scenes. You know, we've had slightly more headlining journalists, if you like, those that like to see their faces and, and, and read their own articles that have been complaining about how tough it's going to be during the course. I likened it to there's one particular very famous journo that, that, that does all of the rounds, but I, I've always questioned how the hell he ever makes any money. But, you know, he, he almost did a Ratner on us this week. You know, if anybody remembers the uh, jewellery store uh, where Gerald Ratner stood up and said that his product was crap and immediately the share price and, and everything collapsed around the Ratner's jewellers front because of what he'd said in this thing. And I think I think that, that some people are, that are in a position that, um, quite a vocal position and saying how difficult it is and how crap it's going to be with, with you know, uh, MotoGP, too many of them detracts from the, the, the uh, what's the words I'm looking for, but the quality of it, that, that suddenly it becomes grey, that we roll into another GP, we roll into another GP. I it, it, absolutely yeah. disagree with that, by the way. Just oh, okay. to make, you know, I disagree with it completely because every Grand Prix we go to, is an absolute if it can stand on its own because they are brilliant races at brilliant racetracks you've heard me talk all the all the year about favorite racetracks and i think i get to when you ask me this harry always every racetrack i've got something enthusiastic to say with the exception maybe of valencia and of course of <laughs> le mans now le mans is some people's absolute favorite so who am i to say that you know i don't like it so much there valencia you know, I think it's a poor one to finish your season on, particularly if it was a bit closer than it is this year. If you're really going for the, you know, if there's five points between the, the headline men, I think it's a difficult racetrack to finish your year on. And I often question why we do that. But that's not to say I don't want to see Valencia on the calendar. It's just a question of should it be the last round? I don't think it should be because it's, a, you know, I use the word Mickey Mouse, words Mickey Mouse. I'm sorry to say that, but it is a more of a Mickey Mouse track than a race race track. It's not a Phillip Island. It's not a Mugello. It's not a you know Portimao, um, where you can get stuck in and and have proper proper racing. It's more of a line astern kind of a place. If you qualified well, you know you're going to be in with a chance of being on the podium. There's not going to be much of an upset. Is that really your, your main your main angst towards the track then? Just the lack of overtaking opportunities. Well, I think the weather as well. It's at the wrong time of the year for Valencia. It doesn't show Valencia in its best light. I mean, Valencia is a great city. It's a great racetrack. That, you know, from a, from an access point of view, it's a proper racetrack. It's a it's a proper place to go, Valencia. It's easy for people to get into to that part of Europe and enjoy it. Um, you know, it, it could be a, a week long holiday with a with a MotoGP at the end of it, which which would be the way that you know I think a lot of people like to enjoy their their Grand Prix if they're going to take a jaunt into into going to one or two during the year. And I think Valencia could be a a bigger one than that. It sells out as it is. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a massive. It's like an arena. You can see everything from every one of the concrete grandstands. Doesn't matter where you sit, you can see all of the track, which is a massive advantage. You know, it's like watching it on 3D television. You know, it's all there in front of you, and you can see everything that's going on. But it is a bit of a concrete jungle in that 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 you know they've they've made the most out of a very small area. Valencia have done a great job from that. But from a racing perspective. It's a difficult place to pass. And when we see motorbikes that are so close, within thousands of a second now as they are, it makes it even harder. Back in the day when there was a bigger disparity between tyres, manufacturers, and performance of bikes, you know, Valencia, okay, you could, you, could, you could muscle it to the front or whatever you might do. Nowadays, you've got no chance. If you haven't qualified it well, you know, I hate to hark back to the Valentino Rossi Marquez debacle of 2015, but of course, there was all the big thing with with, you know, somebody wouldn't, didn't make the pass they should have made and all the rest of it. Well, that's fine to say from the terraces, but from a, being on a motorbike point of view, 
it's not an easy place to make passes. And I think that that is probably the biggest criticism, that and the weather at that time of the year. Well, Pete, you're going to have fun. You're going to be down on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but is it, a, is it a good track for testing, though? Uh, well, well, yeah. Again, it's it's a unique track, isn't it? When when you go testing, you want something that's going to be sort of an average, don't you? Something that's going to apply for most of the season, and uh, yeah. So that's why someone like Sapang is very good because it's got a whole range of different, you know, fast corners, slow corners, long straights, hard breakings. That's that's what you want for testing, isn't it? Really, and uh, yeah. The danger is with Valencia, you can end up with a bike that might suit a very, very tight and twisty track of which there are not that many Saxon ring, of course, being another one, but yeah. So really for testing, you want something that's going to, that's going to sort of be a good indicator of where you're going to be for most of the season. And I suppose going, looking at testing and well, looking at next year with these sprint races as well, are we going to have teams working on you know a sprint race setup? Will they have sort of a qualifying setup, a sprint race setup and a normal race setup, if you like? Are they going to actually have to develop bikes specifically for those shorter races? So give them even more work over over the winter to sort of to sort of work on. And really, as, as Keith says, this is the last this test after this test is the last chance to make a really big change before Sepang, because by Sepang, it's too late, really. You can tune, you can tweak bits, but you can't completely throw out your engine and get another one ready in time for the, the Portimao test and then the start of the season. There's no time to do that. So this is the cutoff point for a lot of teams. And as Mark, Mark we spoke about earlier, Mark Marquez, he's still waiting for a full new Honda, isn't he? And uh, he's going to have to hope that when it arrives, it's it's pretty well sorted, because otherwise there's going to be some uh, some sleepless nights ahead with Sepang, I would think, before riding the bike. So he'll want to he'll want to get on the bike on Tuesday, like everybody on the 23 bike and think, yeah, this is the direction we need. And we'll keep going in in this, uh, in this way. A little bit left of field, sorry, left of field. I don't know if I'm left from a right, (laughs) (laughs) just for your amusement. Um, I I am surprised that we don't have a rider and machine weight limit. So we've got parity in MotoGP. We've got, millimeter measuring if you go off the track a bit we've got this we've got that we've got all sorts of rules nowadays that trim things down and as the as the bikes have become so close in in their performance over the the last few years i can't quite understand why we've not had a rule change that gives us a an overall minimum weight rider and bike to to get even more parity um I don't know why I say that. It was something that was rattling around in my head the other day when I was thinking about what rule changes could be coming in the future as things get tighter and tighter. But you've got quite a large, you know, you've got, you know, some riders that are very, very small and very, very light. You've got others that are a little bit bigger, you know, bigger muscles. Could it be that that the reason we don't have that is because the bigger guys have got more levers for muscle in these bikes? The little guys have got more straight line performance, perhaps power to weight ratio being an issue quite often. I wonder, I wonder if, if when some of these contracts are being done, whether riders have to, you know, send in their, their measurements and their weights yeah. and all the rest of it. It's a bit like a beauty contest, isn't it? To see whether the, 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 the rider suits the bike to an appointment. Well, wasn't it Petrucci who always struggled being slightly stockier, yeah. slightly bigger, especially on, on that Tech 3 bike last year? You can go back years. You can go back to Rob McElnay, if you like. You know, Rob Mack, you know, you looked at his sector times and he was fast in the sector times where it was like really rider-wise and getting stuck in. But as soon as you got in the straight, the long straights, Rob Mack lost half a second in the sectors that, that you needed that performance. This is going back in the two-stroke days, of course. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, it is an issue. There's no Danny Petrosa. I mean, little Danny. But well, what Danny made up for maybe in that, uh, that first gear squirt 
um, by being so light, he lost in not being able to get enough heat in the front tire quite often through working it harder. You know, and also with, do you remember Efren Vasquez in uh, in Moto Three? Jack Miller named him T Rex, didn't he? <laughs> Short arms, but plenty of bite. <laughs> Which, whatever happened to Efren Vasquez? Great little rider in Moto Three. Anyway, he left us a while ago. You know, as in went away from from racing. Um, but his problem was that his short arms meant that he couldn't get his weight over the back of the bike. So it was always stood on its nose. You know, he, he was an aggressive rider, but because of his stature, he couldn't place his body where he needed to place it in the braking area. So, so someone like Miller being a bit bigger and a bit heavier could push his big bum over the back of the seat and get the thing nice and level on the brakes into, into some of the, the sharper braking areas. So, you know, different things. This is the wonderful thing about motorbike racing, isn't it? Because the rider does make a difference you know, where they can place their body and how they can move around on that bike makes a massive difference. So maybe my rider weight thing is 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 not something that will come in because nobody's mentioning it at this moment. Petrucci used to, but he was the heaviest guy in MotoGP. But I think there should be a minimum weight. I think that they should level that playing field a little bit as well. You know, the likes of Ale oh, Valentino, let's mention Valentino. He's out racing in cars where it won't matter quite so much, but... You know, in on a Valentino was a guy that you know you could not find any fat under any skin. He was like the skin of an aircraft wing pulled over a, over his skinny chassis. There was no fat on him. In fact, he didn't look well most of the time, Valentino, if you ask me, because there was no spare meat on him. He's six foot and a bit, I think, Valentino. He's probably an inch taller than me. And I remember thinking, Christ, that's a, he's a big lad, really, for racing motorcycles. And it makes a difference. Powder weight makes a difference. If you well, if you if you were a factory and you're trying to lose half a kilo off your bike, you'd probably pay hundreds of thousands of pounds to develop a bike to get rid of half a kilo. Whereas your rider, you know, there used to be a thing in the in the old days where they'd say, "Pardon me for this. Go for a good dump before you go for a ride. We want to lose half of want to lose a bit of weight." <laughs> I'm sure it's still a thing now, folks. Even though it's distasteful. Well, well, one rider who is very keen on there to be a minimum weight is actually Rossi's brother, Luca Marini. You know, he's struggling with all the things you mentioned. He's he's a bigger guy and he does feel he, he, he is pushing for it. But as he says, this is something that only the manufacturers and we explained this before, only the manufacturers can really change the technical rules. They all have to agree on it. And for whatever reason, the manufacturers don't seem that keen on it. He wasn't sure why. Of course, there is the argument as Keith explained that smaller riders also have these disadvantages. And so you know, that's the reason why they're not doing anything because it's kind of, it's not just the big guys that lose out, the small guys can lose out as well. But uh, another thing is that maybe the manufacturers, they don't like the idea of having to bolt weight, bits of weight onto the bike, you know, to, to make up the minimum limit. Where would they put that weight and all that kind of thing? Would it upset the handling or things like that? But definitely Marini feels exactly like you, Keith. He can't understand why it's there in Moto3, it's there in Moto2. And obviously he was, uh, a, you know, fighting for the title in Moto2, wasn't he? He, he understands that. And he, he sees the disadvantages in MotoGP even now. And, and like his brother, he's not, you know, there's no there's no fat on him, but he is quite a tall guy. And so, yeah, he's, he's something that he's been struggling with these two years in MotoGP. Maybe we're going to have one of them signs that you get a fairground out the back doors of the garages, you know, where you've got the big arrow. And if you don't reach a certain height, you can't come on the bike. <laughs> you can't go on this ride. <laughs> You're not tall enough. <laughs> Do you think they'd have a six foot five, a hundred kilogram uh, guy on a on a bike? Do you reckon that would go good for drag? 
Well, I'll give you a good slipstream. I mean, uh, yeah, talking about yeah. Rob McElnay, you didn't get a draft like Rob Mack, that's for sure. You can feel it from 50 yards back as opposed to the 20 yards back. You start to go like this when you're behind Rob Mack and oh, 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 oh. <laughs> suddenly if you're, you're passing. <laughs> if, you're, if you're an audio-only listener, I do encourage you to go and watch, to our YouTube page and watch the video because that was excellent, Keith's uh, physical description there. Uh, it's, it's funny because you can feel a slipstream. You can feel when you're getting to... to you're back a bit and you've got to run out the corner and it literally starts to just starts and i can't imagine what it's like now we've got these wings all over the bloody bikes the amount of the amount of air being disturbed in front of you is huge now in comparison and you you just start to get a little tickle of it you you know it's not and all of a sudden it it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then and you're running at the rear wheel and you you, straight by it's brilliant i mean slipstream is a real art we kind of don't talk about it much nowadays because we see it so often but really it's a it's something you learn as a youngster on a Moto3 bike or, or a, a, a Talent Cup bike or something like along those lines. But it really is, I mean, in Moto3, it's like mega important. It give you a second a lap. In MotoGP, with all that horsepower, it's not quite as important. It, it, gets, it gets more important as you have less horsepower because it's giving you that vacuum that, you, you know, the guy in front is clearing the air and giving you that big suction behind. Motorbikes aren't very aerodynamic. You know, they're, they're, they're nowhere near as aerodynamic as a car, for instance. And, you know, cars manage the aero around them really, really well. Um, you know, how complex is a Formula One? When you look at it, you think, what on earth is all this? You know, it's, it's kind of so complex. And because it's a flat platform, it's important in Formula One. In, in bikes, you know, it's a moving thing. You know, it, now we've got this ride height adjuster sits it down a little bit more. And I can understand that because, the, you know, the wings on the front, as soon as you're asking for the power and the bike sits up, again, this is not very good for anyone listening on audio, but when the bike sits up at the front when you're under power, you alter the attack angle of all of the aero. And then when you brake, you suddenly get more angle on the front. So you've got a completely different motorbike in certain you know, parts of the track, depending on how you're riding it as well. You know, Another thing is, is that, again, completely alien to, to most of us that have ridden motorbikes for, for so long, is you know some riders smudge the front brake even though they're on the throttle they're smudging the front brake as well just to alter the angle of the, the motorbike i'm sure that's not quite the same now that we've got this uh, ride height adjustment front and rear now but you can alter the angle of the bike you can weight the front of the bike with a little bit of front brake even when you're on the throttle you know there's so, the way these guys ride motorbikes now is alien to the likes of my generation and maybe the generation after me you know from beyond that, there's completely different. The, the, the amount of rear brake they use, the amount of front brake they use, where they use it, the balancing of the bike nowadays is so incredibly different to how it used to be. The management of tires by weighting things and moving things around and how you operate the bike. In, in the, And of course, you've got seamless gearboxes as well now, which means you can do more of it. You can balance the bike much neater without, you know, and shift gears through the middle of corners and, and into corners when you're trail braking in there as well, because the seamless gearbox literally takes that lag out of, of what you do, where the suspension moves on a, on a gear change. It doesn't move anything like as much now. I mean, we could do a whole technical piece on this. We could go on for hours about it, and I'd, I'd love to do it one day, because my understanding of it is, is minimal, because I have not ridden motorcycles like this. I only observe from outside and remember how it was for so many years and how you rode a motorcycle uh, and then you've got the likes of talking of aliens like mark marquez who is just still brilliant and moving everyone had to suddenly change the way they rode a motorbike to be like mark marquez because he was getting more out of it than they were and suddenly everybody went wow we should try this and again anybody who's been on a racetrack have you tried changing your style have you tried changing 
how you ride a motorbike. If you're slow, you can change your style easily. You can sit up a bit, you can move around a bit, you can do everything when you're slow. But when you're fast and you're already on the limit and you're looking for that kind of tiny little bit extra and you start to move yourself about on the bike, <laughs> believe me, that's when it gets really tricky. I mean, I could actually sit and listen to that all day. That sounds like a, uh, we definitely need to dive, dive more into that. An, off, an off-season topic, I think, would be, uh, be an excellent one to, to go to. Um, we, we got a bit sidetracked from poor old Paulus Bargro, but we've done him now. Uh, if, <laughs> if we go, oh, let's, let's finish that piece off, though, because there's just a couple of other riders who I think des- they deserve their bit of airtime after all that for one final ride. Um, so, Paul, we mentioned, he's, he's gone. He's going to the KTM fold next season. So, last time with Repsol Honda. Um, and, yeah, um, um, things left on the table, we think, there. Um, but Tech 3, Ralph Fernandez, Remy Gardner, both off. One's off to World Superbikes. The other uh, is off to the new RNF Aprilia team, Ralph Fernandez. Although, ironically, Pete, it's uh, Ralph Fernandez who is behind Remy in the standings at the moment best finish of 12th which i think came back in germany this year so what you make of the two ktm boys this year again it just seems like a team that's uh, not great if you're a rider <laughs> to put it bluntly <laughs> well it, it looked like a dream lineup didn't it you know the top two in moto two i mean uh, you know both of them dominated gardner and fernandez dominated that championship didn't they last year and so to have both of them move up in in the same team it, it looked like a fantastic rookie lineup but yeah it's it's it, it, they're unlucky, aren't they? They're arriving on a difficult bike, and that's always the thing. And then you're looking at the, the guys you were beating riding Ducatis like Bezecchi and Digi Antonio, and, and you know that they are. They're looking over at those guys and going, hang on, I was, I was beating those guys day in, day out last year, and now I'm struggling to stay with them. And I think that it's a difficult situation, isn't it? And as we know, they're both moving on. So, yeah, all change. Uh, Fernandez off to, off to the Aprilia and uh, Gardner off to World Superbike. I think you said it, Pete. Rookies. You got two rookies on a bike that's not perhaps upgraded itself as much as you would have expected in 2022. I mean, they were having trouble at the factory end of things, let alone the satellite independent team. So although they're all supposed to be on factory KTMs the same, I don't think they, they probably would have been. And I, I think that despite the fact Hervé Poncherol, Guy Coulon, who, who own and run Tech 3, um, being a brilliant pastorally, you know, looking after their team, I think it's a great little team. It's a... It's almost like a 1980s team in the way that they run things behind the scenes. It's, it's got a professional 1980s team. It's a nice place to be, but it just didn't work. It didn't work for either rider. They couldn't make it work for whatever reason. And it's a massive shame. I think it's a great team tech three, but they were kind of forced into the KTM route as well, weren't they? Rael Fernandez was forced into going to MotoGP when he didn't really want to go that way at that particular time in his life. I think he's the one that scored the bit. Well, in fact, I think both those boys have scored in that I think Remy Gardner will be a contender in, in World Superbikes. He rides Superbikes really well. His dad, Wayne, always used to tell me how quick you know, Remy was on a, on a Superbike um, when they used to go playing on him. Um, so I, I believe Wayne on that front, even though Wayne's been a bit, um, should we say, cut off from the Remy side of things after saying a few things he probably shouldn't have been. Uh, Wayne is 1980s, opening his mouth when you shouldn't open your mouth. He's, he's very much my we should, era. We should get him on here. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Rael Fernandez going to Aprilia is a really good move for him, and I think it's good for Aprilia as well. I think he's going to enjoy it there. I think Remy going to Superbikes, he's definitely going to enjoy that there. The, the atmosphere in Superbikes 
a little bit more relaxed, no less competitive, but but very, very relaxed. The, the whole thing in the paddock and the like will suit Remy down to the ground. And uh, we can welcome him back when he's um, when he's gone and won the World Superbike Championship. Absolutely. And, and look at the, the man he replaced, my man, Ika Laquona, doing very well in World Superbikes this year in his first season. So uh, you can be extremely competitive, even if you've had a bit of a, a, a lackluster season in MotoGP. Um, Alex Marquez, another man on the move. Uh, LCR Honda, it will be his last race with them. He is off to Grassini. And really, nothing beat his... 2020 podiums really and and the only podiums he's had those two second places France and Aragon for for Alex Marquez it must be I always think it must be a lot of pressure on him to to have the 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 name not just not just coming up you know it's not like I compare it to F1 it's not like Mick Schumacher or if you go back a little bit Bruno Senna where you know their their fathers and uncles had so much success years ago he's got a brother who has been there while he is also racing I, that that must be a lot of pressure to handle, no? Well, I think they're all in pressure. This this is you know you're talking the top end of the sport here, aren't you? But at the end of the day, I look at it as a positive in that that he's got somebody who who can really give him a proper heads up, and they work quite well together. Those two, they are a close unit, brothers. Um, you know, it's not like a rival. I'm sure there is when they're out playing on their motocross bikes or whatever they do nowadays. Since both of them had a fair clattering over the years, I'm sure that that. that They've limited the motocrossing a little bit. But the fact is, is that Mark has always been very, very positive towards his brother. And I would think that, that they work quite closely together. Um, Alex Marquez hasn't performed on the LCR Honda, um, which surprises me a little bit. I mean, he's had flashes of brilliance here and there. And again, I think where he's going is, is going to, you know, change is as good as the rest for want of a flippant kind of a, a phrase to, to, to fill it all in. But, Pressure is there for all of them, every single rider. You mentioned Remy and Rail, they will have been under huge pressure to perform. The frustration must be huge. But the pressure of, of having a brother out there doing the business, I think Alex probably recognises that his brother's quite a bit special. But the good side of that, he's not quite a bit special in distance. He's quite a bit special and very, very close. So he will be giving him every piece of information that's going to help Alex, whether he can do anything with it, um, is another matter. We always remember hearing Cal Crutchlow saying that, yeah, I can look at Mark's data, but I can't use any of it because it's just, <laughs> it's alien. I can't make it work. If I try and do what Mark does on a motorbike, I'm just going to crash. Um, and he's a bloody good rider, Cal Crutchlow, as he's proved yet again in semi-retirement and 37 years old. Yeah, it was a, it was a strange thing for Alex, wasn't it? He came in during this the, the COVID season, didn't he? He was going to be teammate to Mark. Uh, you know, as you expect him to just sort of, as you say, Mark to be fighting for the world championship again. He'd just come off that 2019 season where he'd got all those record points and wins and everything else. Uh, you know, then he gets replaced by Paul to come back to Paul before he's even done a race at Repsol Honda. They announced that Paul's going to be joining the team next year because of the delayed season. He'd never even done a racing lap and he found out he's lost his, his Repsol Honda seat for the following year, but would be moved to LCR. So, well, okay. So, but again, that's still a bit of a strange way to start your MotoGP career, isn't it? And then what happens at the first race? His brother breaks his arm. And so suddenly from being the guy who, who was probably expecting to just sit on the other side of the pits and, you know, and, and, and learn from Mark and everything else. Suddenly he's now the remaining Repsol Honda rider in the reigning champion winning team. And he has to sort of pick up from there. And, and, and in fairness to him, those podiums, you know, during that year, he, he rode well then. And he did, uh, was the, the talking about brothers, wasn't it? Mark, did Mark, didn't Mark tweet 
you know, I am the brother of Alex Marquez, wasn't it? After one of those rides, just because he was aware that, that Alex was always getting this, you're the brother of Mark, you're the brother of Mark. And he said, you know, let's flip this around because credit to him. Some of those, you know, when he got those podiums, they were good rides. Aragon, he was, he was exceptional. But then, yeah, moved to LCR after that and really has never looked like, um, you know, the guy that he was in that rookie season, which is a bit unusual because during his career previously, he was a bit of a slow burner. He sort of, he gradually built up, didn't he? Uh, and yet it, we had this sort of, the podiums came in the rookie year, okay, at the factory Honda team, and then he, he hasn't been able to re- replicate that. So as Keith says, it's, it's a good time to change for him. I think it's, it is almost a make or break change. It, you know, he, he needs to, to make a step up in his results on the Ducati. And of course, the big thing is, you know, Mark's going to be looking at what he does on that Ducati. Because he knows how everything about Alex is, as Keith explained, he trains with him, he lives with him. They're in the, the motorhome together at the track. He knows what Alex can do on a bike. So if Alex gets on this Ducati and he's suddenly flying, you can imagine in Mark's head what he might be thinking. And that's, that's the, I mean, people are joking about it, but they're thinking, you know, was that maybe what Gigi was thinking? Just sort of, just put that out there, you know. Mark, if you ever want to ride a Ducati, look what your brother's doing on it. Yeah, yeah. I think you made a good point there, Pete, and I'm glad you did, about the slow burn. You know, Alex Marquez winning his world titles was a slow burn. It took him a while to do it in Moto3. You know, I, I think that we've not seen the best of him yet in MotoGP, and I think that's still to come. Absolutely. Well, I think, uh, as we say, a change can always be a good thing. So he will, and we've seen that Bastanini can ride that Grassini bike very well indeed. So uh, we keep our fingers crossed, Alex Marquez, in 2023. Uh, finally, as, as we've had a question as well, Brian Ritchie's, uh, what is your take on Darren Binder going to uh, Liquid Molly Husqvarna Intact GP in the Moto2 class? Of course, it will be Darren Binder's last race uh, in Moto GP for now as he goes down to Moto2, although he's never actually raced in Moto2, of course, because he made the jump from Moto3, which Keith, I think is fair. You were very critical of him before he, he came into uh, MotoGP. Uh, he had a great result back in Indonesia, I think, second round, his best result so far this season, which was 10th. But since then, I mean, that bike as well, that Yamaha has clearly proven tricky. Uh, but he's had some very experienced teammates along the way too. I think critical of, of Darren Binder for making the jump I mean, it was a big, big jump. And if you looked at his track record of, you know, everything except the bloody pace car, it was one of those situations where, you know, Darren Binder's enthusiasm for that last yard of breaking into whatever turn he arrived at on the inside of somebody was actually quite a frightening prospect for everyone in MotoGP. But I think he's done a great job in MotoGP. I think he really, really has. I think Darren Binder has shown great, Restraint where he needed it and performance where he had, where he could get it. I think Binder's been a very good MotoGP rider this year, and I've been really impressed with with what he's done. And I think it's unfortunate that he's he's found himself outside of the loop now, which is a, I really do find that you know he's done a good job this year. I think Binder. All the critic critics like myself have all been stuffed back under their stone, and Binder rode very well on a MotoGP bike. It's um, He's not done with yet, Darren Binder. He's got that kind of South African grit about him as well, hasn't he? I mean, I, I you know, the Binder family, if you like, you know, Brad Binder, they're quite tough characters. He's gonna, he's, he's not done and dusted yet, that's for sure. He'll be, he'll be back with a bang at some stage. <laughs> Watch out, Motor Three, <laughs> because I think riding a Motor Three bike, although a completely different technique, um, he's going to be arriving quite a bit slower than he has done before, and I think we're going to be back into a situation where Binder on the brakes is going to be something to be watching to behold again. I'm looking forward to it. Do you, do you mean Moto2? He's already done three. I mean Moto2, sorry. <laughs> I do mean Moto2. Watch uh, out Moto3 Moto as well. 
Moto 2 will sort, suit him really, really well. I think that it's it's closer to Moto GP than it's ever been since the triumphs and the electronics have changed to the point they've come to. So he will be well equipped coming backwards, just that tad, to Moto 2. If he went back to Moto 3, then it would be frightening for all of us. <laughs> Apologies. Yeah, I, I think Darren deserves another year in MotoGP. He's just so uh, like Remy, isn't it? They've just been unlucky. These two grid places are disappearing. And, and so, you, you know, there's less rides available. And obviously, Dobby's retired. So there's one one place there. But then Augusto Fernandez is coming up as, as the rookie. And those are the two guys that are, that are losing out in the musical chairs, aren't they? But yeah, a shame because some of Darren, I mean, the opening lap at Sepang when he passed, was it 12 riders or something? I mean, he's a, he's a real racer. And, uh, you know, he's so early in his career and he's showing that promise already. And uh, it would have been great to, for him to get another year, uh, you know, and, on the Aprilia if he'd have been able to stay there. But even so, I think it's good for him, as Keith says, to have had this experience in MotoGP. It's going to stand him in good stead. He's going to a very good team in Moto2. You know, there's, you know, it's a solid, solid team there. And uh, yeah, I think he's got everything lined up for a great season in Moto2. And I'm sure we haven't seen the last of him in MotoGP. Agreed. Mm. Well, you mentioned there, obviously, losing Suzuki, those two slots um, available. Uh, and in the news in the last week, uh, we had uh, KTM are reportedly buying uh, MV Augusta, which seems fairly uh, significant. Of course, uh, a very uh, renowned team. Keith will talk about, you know, the likes of Agostini, even John Surtees, I think, raced for them back in the day. Ten world titles uh, being achieved amongst them. Uh, the, the, they reportedly go to take some stake in 2023 before a 100% stake in the team by 2024. Could that provide a route back into the top flight of motorcycle racing? There are two slots available, hypothetically. It's a badging job, if you ask me. Oh. Um, I think we're going to see something along the same lines as we've seen with Moto3 and KTM, Husqvarna, you know, radi radi ra. Um, I think that it will be a KTM because MV don't have anything that um, is in the development process at all for, for, you know, much for the road, let alone for, for racing. Um, it's a shame that, that, that MV would have, will collapse without um, some input from the likes of KTM or someone else. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a great shame. MV have, you know, we mentioned badging, they've been in Moto2, but of course it's just a badge on the side of the, on the side of the motorcycle to lose the MV name would be a, a disaster. I mean, you mentioned two names there, John Sertes and, and, and Giacomo Agostini, but I, I remember Phil Reeve particularly again on, on MV looking so, so incredibly good quality. Um, it's a fantastic name from the past, um, but it's fallen by the wayside a little bit. It needs a bit of an injection. So KTM doing what they're doing. You know, will we see the, the Tech 3 team suddenly be the MV team? Um, you know, from a KTM point of view, it would make sense, wouldn't it? So they don't have the criticism, perhaps, of being a KTM factory team, as they are, and not performing. You can sort of offload a little bit of that, um, badge it MV, and suddenly, you know, if they're not performing 100%, it's not the KTM name that's getting criticised, it's the MV name. And, of course, if you suddenly make it perform you're creating a marketplace for MV straight away from a road badge point of view. I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of clever marketing going into this as well. You know, it all comes down to, at the end of the day to price. 
you know, for, for a relatively small factory, KTM don't spread themselves over a long way. When you think of their off-road department, their road race department, they do a remarkable job for, for a relatively small outfit. Um, and to, 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 to get a name like MV, I don't know how much money's being mooted about, how much it's costing them, but, but you know, it won't be a lot of money, I wouldn't have thought, in the grand scheme of things. And to get a badge like MV, you know, worth paying for, in my view, would be a terrible shame if it went to the wall and, and just got broken up. Yeah, it looks like the Suzuki replacement we, we spoke about before, didn't we? But it would be a genuine new manufacturer. It wouldn't be a rebadged effort. And that, as Keith explained, that really rules out KTM because that's their philosophy is to to use the, the, the same platform, isn't it? The engine and the bike as a common platform, whether it's in Moto3 or whatever, and, and just badge it up a bit differently. And that's, um, you know, that's what they do and it works for them. And it, it's a great way to brand and use motorsports. So, but it's not, it seems that's not what Dorna want for this replacement for Suzuki, whoever that might be in the future. So it would have to be someone like BMW or whoever, or basically someone that's going to come in and build, you know, their own engine, their own chassis, a different bike, and not uh, not like the gas gas at, at Tectoire next year, which which is which is a KTM. So um, yeah, so it looks like I mean I'm sure KTM will want to use motor racing in some way because they they've got such experience of building up their brands. You know KTM is a dirt bike brand, wasn't it? But now it's so synonymous with racing because they've used racing to get to make that transition across. Same with the Husqvarna and the Gas Gas brands. And now this is a bit different because they've got a brand that's already very famous in in road racing. So it's it's a different different kind of uh, acquisition, if you like, to go for, for something that's already very famous, as Keith explained, in racing. So let's see what they've got planned for it. But yeah, I don't think it's going to be this this sixth manufacturer that we're all wondering who might that be in the future. It, I, I don't think KTM, you're looking at needing sort of 50, 60 million plus for a factory project with your own bike and that kind of thing. And, and that's a lot of money to find now. Um, and again, they'd be competing against themselves, of course, as well, wouldn't they? With uh, with their own KTM bikes on the, the, the Red Bull team and the Gas Gas team. Nobody told Ducati about that when they got eight bikes on the grid competing against themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I've got but to they're say the same bikes. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the Gas Gas brand and the MV band, I mean, Gas Gas, I, I was expecting sort of somebody to be leaping over a car on a road race bike when you've got gas gas on the side of things. Yeah. I think the MV is a much better badge fit for the likes of mm. Tech, Tech 3, but you're right, it's gas gas next year for Tech 3, but um, in the future, you've got to say MV, when it comes 100% under the wing of KTM, would, would make, that would be, be a nice fit for the independent team. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see uh, how that develops, of course. Um, now, Valencia, we've spoken about endings for a lot of riders and teams. It will also be the end uh, for a Moto3 team. And I suppose after the turbulence of uh, the, the Tom Booth-Amos incident coming to light, the Fernandez-Aragon pit-blocking issue, and then, of course, elation, a double podium and a stunning win for, for John McPhee uh, and uh, in Sepang, Max Biaggi uh, officially confirmed that the Max Racing team will not be on the Moto3 grid in 2023 years. Uh, in 2023 years? In 2023. Um, <laughs> I was going to say every year they've been in Moto3, they have uh, scored at least one win. So I think uh, fairly successful. Why do you think this has come about, Keith? And um, what next for, for Max Biaggi? been a very tough year hasn't it really for them with the controversy behind the scenes as well as what's gone on on the track i mean he's going to be scratching his head now max after john took the you know john has looked so good this year i i don't know what the reason is behind the scenes max biaggi 
I think most people looked at it and thought, you know, what's he doing? Why is he why is he involved in all of this? It doesn't doesn't seem to have seemed to be a nice fit for him, perhaps. Um, I'm not surprised. It must probably come down at the end of the day to funding. That's usually the big issue. And I think that we've we've still not seen the fallout from the economic climate. We I mean we talked about this right at the very beginning of this year. You know, what what is going to be the future? You know, Suzuki pulling out got to be down to the economics of the world at this particular time and moving forward. They've taken a, a look at where they, this is all going and, and have jumped ship <laughs> quite early, although not early enough because they committed themselves to five years extra with Dorna just a few months earlier. So Suzuki had changed their minds at the last minute. Maybe Max Biaggi, maybe the world out there that we don't see as a trio and, and the fans perhaps don't see as well, Management is out there trying to bring in sponsorship all of the time from all these different areas. Maybe it's a lot drier, that pond, than, than we're giving it credit for. Maybe it's quite tough to find the kind of funding you need. Maybe that's the reason why Max Biaggi has, has decided to pull the rug out from underneath that project. It's, it's been sort of a, a partnership, I think, with Peter Ertl, with his team. So you've got sort of Max and... Peter Ertl sort of working together, but Peter Ertl's now running the Liquid Moly, so we're talking about Darren Binder, it, the, the Moto3 effort, if you like, of that part next year. And it seems like they're sort of going their separate ways, Peter Ertl and Max. Um, and and as, we're, as we're saying now, where will Max go? We don't know. Um, Sarah Garda, that was always sort of Max's sponsor, wasn't it, when he was racing in Superbike and stuff like that, and it's been on the bike now. And it, I don't think they're part of the, the, the team with Peter Ertl next year and intact, the Moto3 team with Husqvarna. So... Are they planning to move with Max? Could he go to Moto2? He's he's a he's an Aprilia. I, I think it's a, an ambassador or something, global ambassador or ambassador. You see him in the Aprilia gear, don't you? Sometimes in the paddock and in the pits. So he's got a relationship with Aprilia. I mean, you know, w- will he pop up somewhere there? They're obviously having the satellite team with RNF. Could it be something to do with that? We don't know really. Max is sort of just, as you said, Harry. He's just sort of hinted in this statement that he's got. You know, there'll be some sort of racing plans in the future, but exactly what they are, we don't know, other than they won't be in Moto3. So, you yeah, t- good- you touched. It's a very good point there, because the funding will go with Max. Um, and that that quite often happens with the, the figurehead, the Sterilgarda side of things and the like. Is it enough, though, to, to be able to place elsewhere? We'll we'll see. Max Max Biaggi, maybe, it's, maybe he's had enough in the paddock. Maybe he's had enough after the aggravation of this year and the, the amount of trouble that they had with, you mentioned it earlier, the Tom Booth Amos affair. Um, it was quite difficult to keep control of all of that. I wonder where Peter Ertl was in all of that as well. We never really got any statements from Peter, did we, regarding the whole thing? It, it was always Max that everyone talked about. Mm. Peter Ertl kept his head down regarding that. Um, we never did get a statement from him individually, unless you did, Pete. No, no, no. I think it was coming out as as, as the Max Racing team and, and with, with Biaggi as the sort of the figurehead, as you say, Keith. But Peter Ertel's definitely there. I mean, he's he's in the media room at most of the races based there. He's definitely part of the team and working with the team. And I think it's his grid, grid slots. And that's why, you know, it's continuing next year with him as part of this new sort of alliance, if you like, with Intact GP and with Husqvarna backing um, in Moto3. So he will continue. But yeah, the Max Racing side, where will they be? We'll have to keep a lookout. Keep a lookout. Crash.net for all the very latest, as always. Um, now, uh, before we get into uh, our predictions for this weekend, of course, it's make or break for our predictions. Uh, it has been a, a bit of a, a 
tough time across motorcycle racing, especially with rider safety. We talk about it a lot. Uh, more tragedies uh, across different forms of racing this year in motorcycles and, and fresh from the, the red flag or lack of in, in Phillip Island for Jorge Navarro, who was left seriously injured and stranded as the fights continued at full speed. Uh, the MotoGP Riders Safety Commission met at Sepang uh, and included an explanation of why the red flags were mistakenly not shown. And they basically admitted they'd mucked up. Fine, don't do it again. But the more worrying thing I thought, Keith, was that uh, it was reported that less than half of the 24 riders bothered to show up. In fact, I only counted three. Alicia Spargrove, Joanne Mir and Alex Rins. That's a joke, surely. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're being too flippant when you say that, Harry, to be honest with you. How on earth can you try and force through safety issues that are quite close to you, obviously, because you're the one that's going to be copying it if you get it wrong, you know, if you don't attend the safety commission? I mean, I, I don't, I really, truly don't understand that. I remember Bradley Smith used to attend every single one, Britain's Bradley Smith, and he's an intelligent young fella, so he, he, he was quite, he was the right kind of guy to have in there, but you can't ignore those kind of things. Sometimes it's a pain in the backside going to these kind of committee type things where everybody stands up and says and gives their opinion. And it's it's quite an awkward thing to go to. Uh, but you can't make a change if you don't turn up. It's a bit like hating our government, but you don't bother to vote. You know, that's that kind of annoys the hell out of me when you hear people, youngsters are the worst for it. You know, didn't bother to vote. Why didn't you? Well, I don't think it's worth it. If you live in a democracy you've got to vote if you want to make a change you've only got one vote but you should use it same thing in a safety commission if you want your voice to be heard if you want your opinion on safety you need to have rallied around the troops made sure everybody's there it's up to you to go if you don't bother attending then how can you expect everyone else to speak on your behalf you know it, it's I, I find it very strange that, that some riders or, or do i find it strange maybe i don't because i know what riders are like you know, it's, it's kind of over there, this thing, this safety commission. Oh, yeah, do we have to go to that? It's a bit like going back to school or doing your homework. But we're talking about the sport safety. And with the issues of Phillip Island fresh in your mind, you would think, wouldn't you? You would have had 100% turnout next time around. That's how I think. But obviously, clearly, that's not how everyone does. Sounds like about six or seven, doesn't it? When we don't, it, it, the idea is it's the nearest thing, isn't it, to sort of a, any kind of rider organization that, that there is in MotoGP, isn't it? That's really the only time when they all get together. It's not like Formula One where they have like some sort of driver's union or something, isn't it? I think, but MotoGP, they don't have that. They have the safety commission every uh, Friday evening at a Grand Prix weekend. And it's not just safety, it's also a chance to speak about, I don't know, upcoming events or anything that involves the riders that you want them all there and they can speak in confidence. So that's why you don't get a clear record of all this. It's not it's not made public because the idea is the riders can speak freely and, you know, it's not going to be put out, recorded. There's no cameras there or anything. But obviously, the, after the safety commission meeting, the riders will be asked about it by by the media and they will say the topics that came up and that kind of thing. And so unsurprisingly the the topic of what happened at Phillip Island came up and it sounds like Dorna race direction you know made an effort to 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 bring people there to to speak with the riders and kind of go through this knowing it's a serious matter what happened and yeah by the sounds of it only only six or seven were there unfortunately and as Aleish said in uh, in that story you're quoting there you, you know he said you can't criticize uh, in his mind you can't criticize publicly what happened and then not turn up at the meeting you know you've got to you've got to go along and, and speak to people face to face and hear what they've got to say and and how it's not going to happen in the future and things like that there was a pre 
pre-ERTA system, the International Race Teams Association that Mike Trimby is the head of. Mike Trimby originally was pre-ERTA, where the riders had a voice, the riders through Mike Trimby. So Mike Trimby created a much safer environment for right. It wasn't just about you know scrutineering and all the other nuts and bolts of things that used to aggravate teams and riders. And because of Trimby, we are where we are now. Mike Trimby was the guy that, that, that used to voice the opinions of riders and get things done regarding safety barriers, bales of hay, as it was back in the day, um, and so on and so forth. But of course, as that moved on to be the International Race, Road Racing Teams Association, um, he represents the teams now, um, which the riders are part of. So the riders have kind of lost that that natural uh, union, if you like, to force forward safety issues through one man. Um, but they've still got the opportunity to turn up at the safety briefing and do something themselves. But obviously, for some reason or another, too many of them decided not to bother, which, which again, as I say, with Philip Island fresh in your mind, you would have thought they would have don't understand it yeah and especially i think recently coming out jorge navarro saying just you know reliving the events of what he went through uh, quite shocked himself at what he had to go through and if that doesn't uh, resonate with the other riders then you know what will but hopefully the, the the fact that this has been made a little bit of in the media will then encourage them uh, to go to more of them to go um, well, hang on a second <laughs> if the fact you got a rider lying by the side of the track no red flag came out doesn't encourage them to go i don't think what we say is going to have any well, that's not necessarily not necessarily us but just in like i think the uproar towards it but even Alicia Spargo calling him out you know he was very vocal Joanne Mir Alex Rids all at all the, the only ones as far as I know who turned up all saying where where was everybody else we were all stood around waiting we thought people were just coming in late you know where were they I think you know if you've got your own fellow riders questioning you on, on an issue as serious as this I don't know we can only hope but um I think you Bottom line is you need more than three people to go to, to something like that, don't you? Um, right. Well, let's uh, let's end on a more positive note, shall we? Um, prediction time, if it can be positive. Uh, Michael Harrison has got his prediction in already. He's going for a Joanne Mir win. That would be a great way for Suzuki to go out, wouldn't it? Um, I'm going to go in first because I've already written mine down and I need some points on the board and I don't want to be accused of plagiarism. So I'm going for a Ducati, <laughs> all Ducati podium. Bastianini for the win. I think there might be some controversy there. Bagnaia second, Miller third. Locked in. Who, who's ready? Who's got their three lined up? Who's next? Well, I'm, I'm, I was going to go for a Bastianini win. I think I'm with you on that one. And I know Pete will as well because I think... It, <laughs> In, in fairness, Pete had already said that right at the very beginning no, of the show. No, oh, I, did, I didn't hear that. I don't think I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm standing up for you, Pete, brother. <laughs> He's too polite, Harry, to have brought it up himself, yeah. so I'll do it for him. <laughs> but I'll go with the Bastianini, Alex Rins. Oh, okay. Bang Naya. Oh, no. I like that. I like the Rins. Yeah, that'd be a nice way for, for Suzuki to go out, wouldn't it? Um, and a marker down from Anaya before he joins his teammate. Uh, Pete, what you got for us? I, I'm I'm going to go with a Mark Marquez win. Oh, is that a last minute this change? Is the last chance, isn't it? You know, Honda haven't won a race this year. They're the only manufacturer that hasn't won left-handed track, which we know Mark goes well on. And I don't know. I just have a feeling that he he, he said himself that Valencia is going to be better for them than Sepang. So maybe he could be back to the Phillip Island sort of form. That was the last anti-clockwise track. I don't know. I just wouldn't. So yeah, why, why not? I'm going to go for for a win for Mark. Uh, yeah, second Bastianini, 
And third, I will go Banyaya. Oh, all right then. And I'm assuming you both think Peko is going to win the title with those predictions, even though you both locked in Fabio Quattararo a few rounds ago. <laughs> you keep reminding us of that every week. It's a little know. pleasure you get, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, did we, did we predict anyone at the start of the year, though? Did we make any title predictions at the start of the season? Yeah. Did we? Oh. Yeah, that that one might be. I can't remember. I remember my last year's title uh, prediction was Joan Zarco at the time, and that that ended badly. Um, and this year, I mean, I mean, I take the piss out of you going for Fabio, but who went for Aleish? It was me. But that that, <laughs> that would have been a great story, though. Still, hopefully, I hope he can get third. But I, I have a suspicion Anea will uh, will nick that third place from him anyway. Um, not long to wait though, uh, until we find out who the world champion of 2022 in MotoGP is. It's going to be an absolute cracker. Moto2 and Moto3 in action as well, of course. And uh, in the meantime, make sure you tuned in across Crash.net for all the latest news and analysis across the week. And then we'll be back with you sometime next week. We're still trying to figure that out, but we'll have all the reaction from Valencia and the news from all the testing as well, because Pete's going to be down the ground. So a bumper show for you on that uh, you can get your questions in as always leave them in the comments section tweet instagram facebook us just search crash moto gp if you've got any topics you'd like us to discuss in the off season away from the on track activities we'd love to hear those as well you can leave us a review wherever you get your podcast too and we shall see you right back here next week bye-bye cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.